Hello and welcome to another episode of Everything is Canon, a Sunlinks podcast. I'm your host, Steve Duncan. However you may have found your way here, thanks so much for tuning in. On this podcast, we invite authors from all genres onto the show to discuss their latest books and novels, as well as just about anything else that comes to mind. If you want to reach me, there are several ways to do so, but the best way is to email me at steve at cinelinks.com, or you can always find me on Twitter at stevedunk5 or at everythingcanon. Today in the show, I'm talking to Marco Shira all about their new book, their first middle grade, in fact, The Insiders, which is described as Three Kids Who Don't Belong, A Room That Shouldn't Exist, A Year That Will Change Everything. Perfect for fans of Rebecca Steed and Meg Medina, this debut middle grade novel from award-winning author Marco Shira is a hopeful and heartfelt coming-of-age story for anyone who's ever felt like they didn't fit in. This is about as good as it gets for middle grade, in my opinion, with little to no bullshit, strong character work, and important messaging all coming together in this wonderful story about friendship, family, and coming of age. We talk about many, many things, including our shared love of music, learning to write the hard way, a decent amount of Star Wars, the insiders, of course, and much, much more. While this is a spoiler-free discussion, the odd minor detail may slip out, so if you haven't read the book and don't wish to be spoiled at all, better stop listening now, but definitely double back once you've read it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. As always, around these parts, we encourage supporting authors and stories that affirm the lives of people other than ourselves. Each time we either engage in a conversation, whether it be online or face-to-face, or each time we participate in the market with our purchasing choices. A reminder that this month, September, is National Hispanic Heritage Month in the U.S., so please support the Hispanic and or Latina communities in any way that you can. Since we talk books here, I'm going to provide a list of some, but not all, uh, Hispanic and Latina authors who kick all kinds of ass, my guest included. And this should be done all year long, of course, not just because a Gregorian calendar tells you to. Look for that link after the show. Okay, Marco Shiro is the award-winning author of the young adult books, Anger is a Gift and Each of Us a Desert, and has contributed short stories to, from a certain point of view, The Empire Strikes Back. Uh, Spoiler alert, this will come up in our conversation. Vampires Never Get Old, Tales with Fresh Bites, something else that will come up, and A Universe of Wishes, a a weenie diverse books anthology, which will also come up. Uh, Their Mark Does Stuff universe, Mark Reads and Mark Watches, where they analyze books and TV series, earned them a Hugo uh, Award nomination. They were the nonfiction editor of of Queers Destroy Science Fiction and the co-editor of Speculative Fiction 2015, and is the president of the Connor Bust Board of Directors when not writing... Uh, recording reviews or editing mark engages in social activism on and offline they currently live in atlanta georgia something i actually want to talk about because i think you just moved there not long ago in the middle of a pandemic no less they are here today however to discuss their latest novel the insiders which is described as three kids who don't belong a room that shouldn't exist a year that will change everything perfect for fans of rebecca steed and meg medina this debut middle grade novel from award-winning author Marco Shiro is a hopeful and heartfelt coming-of-age story for anyone who's ever felt like they didn't fit in. Please welcome to the show, Marco Shiro. Hi, Mark. Hello, hello, hello. Um, cool. I don't know. It's weird hearing my bio read back to me, and I'm like, oh, wait, I did do those things. I was just, who was I, like, who was I, one of the authors I was just talking to, it had a, it just, like, it's just a natural thing and it's a, and it's a good thing, but the longer you're in it, the longer your bio gets. Right. So, right. you know, right. there was one author the other day when it was just, it was just like really long and I had to edit it way down. And you talk to some people like, like P jelly Clark, for example, his, oh, right. his is insane. And, and uh, yeah. it sounds weird. Does it hearing it all? Oh, that's you, right? It is. <laughs> it is all me. I mean, there's, it, well, it's also interesting I think this is also evidence. Um, I only recently updated my website with like a very up-to-date bio. Okay. That, that like, you know, I am um, not- Yeah, is any of that not true anymore? I, no, I, no, I mean, it's all true. Yeah, Those are all yeah. things. I, I just think a couple of them are past tense. Like I, a couple months ago, I stopped doing Marta stuff, Mark Reads and Mark Watches. Oh, you uh, did? Okay, okay. Well, 
which, but I don't think we need to edit that, edit that because it's so recent and it's still a huge part of my life. I spent 12 years reviewing fiction through sure. the literature medium, through the television medium. And it would be, you know, I feel like I'd be remiss in not talking about it because I feel like it completely informs how I am as a writer. You know, I didn't go to... Uh, and it did I, earn I, you a Hugo nom, so that is a past fact. You know, I, I dropped out of college. I never finished. I don't have an MFA. I actually only have like maybe a semester or two of any sort of official training. We'll use the word training. You had on the job training though, because we're going to talk writer, about that. But um, Right. But I, I consider the reviewing part of my life is sort of not just a, a, this magical, amazing thing that I was able to do, but it's also my education because that's I, right that you know I, I think I think of it a lot like how I play music which is that I never you know I never had lessons uh everything was self-taught um and so I think the same thing of my writing is that most of it was self-taught which also means that it, I I think a lot of us who are self-taught when it comes to art it means that we imitate the people that we enjoy mm. that we like that's the thing that I want to try to do and then put my own spin on it most um, we're going to talk about this because music is uh, very important in my life as well. Um, uh, it, most musicians that I've ever met, I used to be a roadie for punk rock bands growing up, um, yeah. uh, spent some time in California. And so we're going to talk, we both have crossbuster tattoos. Um, yeah. um, we'll talk about all that, but uh, yeah, all self-taught, all great. I mean, wasn't Eddie Van Halen self-taught? So <laughs> I mean, like it doesn't, you know, I, I feel like that's on the far extreme. End <laughs> yeah. I'm just saying, you know, like there's, uh, there's good examples out there in the world. I'm, uh, you know, it's the way it is, but um, yes, no, you had on the job training, but um, we'll, we'll definitely get to that. One thing I wanted to mention, because I know um, with the universe, uh, no, sorry, Vampires Never Get Old. I know you and Zoraida are very, 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 very good friends. And her episode actually is coming out later today. I talk, spoke to her last week about um, uh, Arquita Divina, which is, yeah. I mean, you've read it, I know. So it's like, yeah. that's the best. Um, yeah. her, so her episode airs today. And I know you guys are very, very, very good friends. And um, Universe of Wishes. So I also blog for We Need Diverse Books. Okay. And um, when I remember Universe's Wishes was super great. Um, you're, and I, I love your shorts. And do you have a preference? Oh, oh. I don't know that I've ever been asked this. Because um, you're really, like, your short stories are fucking great. Like, you're really, really good at it. Now, and like, and here's the I, thing. I here's, the, here's the thing, because in short stories, like, you don't have time for bullshit, right? So it's all, oh, it's no. all, it's all character work. And you're yeah. really good at character work. Thank you. I, you know, oh God, this is such a good question because it's making me think of like what I was writing. <laughs> you made me as think. Because <laughs> as a kid, I wrote almost exclusively short stories. That's right. That's right. I Most tried, kids do, right? Yeah. yeah I, uh, and I get why too, because even the things that I considered, you know, as a kid, quote unquote, a book that I wrote um, at the time, because uh, I'm of the age that, I was the perfect age for Goosebumps when mm. I started coming out. Right. And even though those are novels, I mean, they're more on the much, much, much shorter end um, of the chapter books or whatever. That was sort of the, the like, what I was imitating was that I love these, like, short, snappy, plot-driven 
sort of things. Um, and so I write these like three or 4,000 word stories and badly illustrate them because that is not my, I don't know why I thought that was my forte, but that was sort of where I got my practice. And so I wrote a lot of short stories. I didn't attempt a novel until I was a freshman in college. Um, interesting fact about that novel, I have kept it all these years. It is actually where the insiders came from. Oh, cool. The very first manuscript I ever wrote that was not very good, but had a good idea at the core of it that through time and now knowledge and some wisdom about writing, I was able to turn into something else. So I, I feel, I feel like I have very little anxiety about short stories. I mm. love, I do love writing them. I have gotten to the point now where I'm getting more comfortable writing novels. Right. I, literally later today, I start writing my seventh book. Um, and I'm like, okay, you've written six of these, six whole novels. <laughs> I, now I, I'm getting that sense I got, you know, in my late 20s where I was like, mm, I think you know what you're doing. This is not a thing that is as terrifying as it was before. As for which one I prefer, oh my God, I don't, I'm going <laughs> to, the answer I will give is in the interest of time, Lately, I've been preferring short stories because I've had sort of a completely ridiculous year in terms of deadlines. Mm -hmm. um, I This book that I'm about to start later today, start drafting today, is actually the will be the fourth book that I've written this year alone. Wow. And I, I, don't, I don't like that. That is too many things in a single year. Um, so right now I'm like, of course, I don't have any short story deadlines. I wish I had some because I would be able to start something and finish it like a week later. Right, right, right. Yeah. So right now we'll we'll do the economical answer. Are you feeling uh, like it's a job? Your questions are very good. Um, I think that's a complicated question. And I think yeah, and I think it's okay if you say yes. So, like if you say yes all the time, then we got a problem. I think, I think for me, the balance has always had to, to be thinking of an artistic thing as a job because I've never had the benefit of, uh, I mean, let's be real, I've never had the benefit of being bestowed an absolutely absurd amount of money from the beginning. Right. Ever. Like, you know, it's always been enough to get by for a few months and the way advanced systems works here in North America, unless you are the sort of author who is getting these huge six or seven figure advances. Um, so, you know, it's not a thing that is necessarily sustainable unless you're always working. And it's something I, have, you know, I, I do feel lucky to be friends with and in community with people like Zoraida Cordova or Daniel Clayton, you know, and Adam Silvera is a, is a huge, you know, personal friend of mine as well. And fair, fairly early on in my career too, and getting the sort of advice from people who have been doing this a long time and how to sustain, sustain it. So from the beginning, I always, it, it's always a mixture of the two, which is I enjoy doing this. This is the thing that I've always wanted to do, but I know, especially coming from self-publishing, from, from the writing nonfiction and writing reviews or whatnot, there's always been an element of the hustle to it. And so I don't know how to necessarily, I haven't reached a point where it's purely, I'm just doing it to do it because 
<laughs> thanks capitalism. Um, but I do know some people who've gotten lucky, you know, and gotten the, 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 the bigger advances and are able to actually reach that point. Um, I'm not there yet. I don't know that I'll ever be there yet. So I always can, there is always an element to it where I do take it seriously enough. And especially in terms of my work ethic, where it is a job, this is a thing that I do. Um, and I have expectations that are set upon me by an outside, you know, external force, which in this case is my publisher and my editor. So yeah, I, I do always have to think of it that way. That being said, I, I also feel great that I haven't gotten to a point where I'm like, it's 100% a job and I actually don't like what I'm doing. Um, but I think that also comes from being picky about saying yes to which anthologies, figuring out, you know, I also feel very lucky. I've never gotten like halfway through a novel project and being like, oh, this isn't the book I want to write. Mm. I, I genuinely, when I start I, I, drafting a book, I am excited and like, this is it. This is the project I want to work on. Um, and that helps. I think it really does help to be excited about the thing that you're creating. Is there an aspect of it that you like least, like whether outlining or you know, the, the editing process um, or... I'm a, I'm a very messy drafter. I think the hardest part of any of it, so it's not that I necessarily dislike it, but the hardest part for me is drafting. Mm. I'm very good at like idea, coming up with an idea, you know, doing free writing to try to figure out if there's something at the core of this idea that can be developed into a larger story. I'm a huge outliner. I write very detailed, complex outlines to guide myself. And the reason I do that is if I don't have a guide, that messy drafting is even messier. So I have to do a lot of prep before I start writing something. And, and then sometimes drafting is still like pulling teeth. It is a very difficult but necessary thing to do. And then I love revising. I love revising. And that's probably my favorite part of the process. But I would say drafting is the hardest part for me. Yeah. Um, so you, we sort of talked about very quickly there, you, you learned on the fly, you know, the school of hard knocks type of thing, cause you've been reviewing things for so long. And one of the big things too, and, and I'll get you to fill in the details here, but you covered music, right? Uh, so talk about like what capacity that you did cover music in, and there's nothing that makes you sharper than having to write like daily, weekly, is there? Yeah. Like, Absolutely. like, like you, that just like, you know, I, who was I talking Someone I don't remember. Oh, Sarah Kuhn was, a was just a straight up journalist before. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about how nothing makes you sharper. Nothing hones your skills better than that, like daily or weekly or bi-weekly deadline. Absolutely. Um, so talk about that. Like, t- tell me exactly sort of what you were, what were, yeah. what you were doing. Yeah. Um, I love Sarah Kuhn, first of all. Uh, I didn't know that about them. That is amazing. Um, and it is exactly and precisely my experience as well. Mm-hmm. So from about 2006 to 2010 or 11, <clears throat> excuse me, I worked for um, a website called BuzzNet, which is not BuzzFeed. Um, but BuzzNet was actually sort of a precursor to BuzzFeed as well as Tumblr. And weirdly, a com- combination of the two, I think it's still around. I don't, I don't really know what's going on with it. Um, and <clears throat> I was hired um, to not only manage their community, but use that job to sort of reinvigorate my writing career and particularly writing nonfiction. And so I was covering, um, it's very interesting that time in particular, 2006 to 2010, because I was covering the music scene and I often got sent on tour with bands 
And it was a period of time where everyone was sort of realizing that the old way of selling music and doing shows was dying and this new thing was coming aboard. And so I got to write very, very extensively about that sort of transitional experience where everyone was realizing music was going to have to be digital. That was also a huge time in which these 360 deals were happening with a lot of the major um, record labels, where the record label would control, have a controlling interest in everything, merch production, shows, royalties, uh, grants and licenses and whatnot. And a lot of these bands were realizing, oh, this is very bad. Like this is just another way for them to get more money from us. Um, and so I, I certainly wrote about other pop culture things. It was a really weird period of time where I was a movie critic as on top of all of this and got to go to like press screenings in, in Hollywood. It was very strange. This was all in, in Los Angeles at the time. But yeah, I, I loved that period of my life because I had just sort of stopped touring with this punk rock band, this hardcore band that I was in in California and there's, for, for me, there are a few things in the world I love more than live music and getting to play live music and also getting to open for some of the, the greatest hardcore bands that were playing in the world at the time. It scratched this itch that, that I still have. I still, you know, I, you know, I still play music pretty much every day. Music is probably the most important thing in my life, even though I'm a novelist, like, if I could, I would be in a band. Like, that's the thing I would do for the rest of my life. I love it. And so getting to write about it was an amazing experience. Um, one, because I approached it as a musician and as someone who had toured before. And, and I, I came to find out that a lot of people who were in bands found it easier to talk to me because there was almost, there was a shared language and a shared sense of experiences. I, I say that not trying to say that my experience in this like tiny little punk rock band in California was anything on the same level. Um, but I think they recognize that like you, you, you still know what it's like to be in this grind of I am creating art and I'm going out in the world to share this art. And sometimes the act of sharing it is a great, amazing things. Sometimes it's terrible business wise. It's usually pretty awful because this is such a weird and complicated world. Um, but I had, you know, a very similar schedule to what, you know, Sarah Kuhn was talking about. And I, I think even more so than doing Mark Reads and Mark Watches, I think the thing that prepared me most for being an author was that sense of here's a story assignment. You're going to go to the show and you're going to speak to this artist for two to three hours or, you know, actually, sometimes it was actually two to three hours. And then you have to call this two or three hour thing down into a two to 5,000 word piece and it's due tomorrow at 8 a.m. <laughs> and that, and I say that now, and I, I've told that to other authors because they, I'm a, as much as like drafting is the hardest part for me, I am a very fast drafter. Um, I, it comes from that feeling of being a journalist and having to write a piece and knowing that you don't have the luxury of writer's block. You just don't have time to sit around for a few hours and be like, mm, I don't really know what I'm going to do. Oh, I don't know what goes here. Like, and that's where my outlining habit came from is I would do these interviews and then have to sit down with this information I collected. And so I just write down a quick outline. 
all right, here are the major themes that I think link some of these answers together. Cool. Let me plug it all in. Let me turn it on. And you know what? I, I'm very proud of this too. I had a reputation with my editor of never being late. And I'm proud of that. I'm proud of being able to do that. And that has now transformed into my career as an author. Um, I've also never been late on a draft on edits or whatnot, because I've sort of built it into my brain of, of through experience, how to sit down and just make it happen. That doesn't mean I, I struggle. I still struggle all the time. <laughs> and I still, still deal with writer's block. It is a thing that happens. Um, but I feel like I have tools to deal with it because of that experience. Um, few things to grab there. Number one, I think dependability is a very underrated uh, character trait these days. Um, my dad, who's <clears throat> long dead now, two things he always told me, always wear a suit to an interview and never be late for anything. Yeah. <laughs> I'd rather be an hour early than a minute late. I'm still like that today. Um, yeah, exactly. The fact that you never miss a deadline on the road is is probably miraculous so yeah i used to i was a roadie for punk bands growing up I had good riddance from california i've been all over north america and europe uh okay yeah yeah we, got, have, we, we, to, we could do we a whole have, show just on that um no no, no. We, we good riddance is literally one of my favorite bands of all time all time i i, I, I was mean, there i was there, i was their sound man for three years <laughs> what period of years so this was a comprehensive guide to modern rebellion. Oh yeah. my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So for for forgotten country and then comprehensive guide. Um yeah, and then it was around, and that's when I and then it, well then I got in some trouble and I wasn't allowed to leave Canada. <laughs> uh as, as it happens. As no. it happens, and then ended up connecting with him a couple of years later for uh we went to Europe then a few years later. Yeah, I'd have to really it's been so long now. Um, well, it's been God. I mean, I was, I was, I turned like, I turned 21 in Houston, Texas with them. Right. And I'm 45 now. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, um, but yeah, no, we, uh, and then because of them just ended up, you know, toured with, you know, across Canada with some other bands, like all those groups, like toured, did multiple shows with good riddance and then another band called trigger happy was like opening for you know like all those bands all the fat records bands yeah. all the fat records bands all the epitaph bands yeah. um got to tour across canada with um bad brains which for me was like because i was a, i was a big time oh, i was a big time washington dc kid like yeah. for, for punk rock so like rights of spring today is still my favorite band of all time yeah. um it just yeah so i've got some we could do a whole show just based on that but i know you've got the bars on one side of your neck and the crossbuster on the other so the other. um yeah. So, I mean, I've met all the members of Black Flag, not together, just at various points. And, you know, over the years, met Henry, I've like, met I've Henry, been- I've met Henry, you know, like, um, ju- you know, I've just met all these people that I grew up. And that's the thing. Good Rinse was my favorite band at the time. And I was op- I was doing live sound for a Canadian punk rock band who opened for Good Rinse across Canada. And we just struck up a friendship and they said, we need a guy. And I'm like, let's go. So that's, that's how that's how it started with them. And next thing you know, I was spending like you know spending most of my time in Capitola, Northern California, right? <laughs> like so. But to this day, Chuck and Russ, I talk to them all the like I talk to Chuck the bass player all the time. We're yeah, one of my best friends. Um, people too, like great. And, well, and it, I'm I'm a vegan because of Russ, the singer. Like I am oh, a, big, yeah. a big part of who I am. I've been a vegan for you know 25, 26 years now. Yeah, because of him. You know, I was like a little 18 year old shithead getting in the van with them the time they were just doing vans and like 
going across and they're like, we'll feed you, but we're not going to give you meat. And I was like, why is that? I'm like rosy cheeked. <laughs> Didn't know a fucking thing about anything. Right. Like here's why. And he gave me a book diet for new America by John Robbins. Long story. Short. Yes. So, oh my God. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, so it's so interesting how many of us, because of me. So I, I, so the main reason I went vegan, I was vegan for 11 years and now I'm working with the nutritionist to do it again. Cause I got yep. very, very sick. Yeah. Uh, well, you got to do it right. You got to do it. Right. Yeah. You have to do it right. Um, but mine, it was also a musician. It was Davy Havoc from AFI. Oh, right on. Yeah. Was, I, remember, I remember seeing, it's funny how, cause I know they're, they're big time now, or, you know, maybe yeah. they're on the, the way down a little bit now. I just haven't heard much from them in a while, but I remember like being at shows with them and they'd be like the opener of like six bands. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. and nobody knew who they were. It was so funny to see them. And then all of a sudden next year, they're fucking huge. Yeah. It was great. Yeah, I, I, I also, it's funny that you bring up like the, I met the members of Black Flag thing, because I think of it as like, this is a punk rock passport thing, which is at some point, everyone who goes to shows meets the members of Black, and you just get a little stamp and you're like, okay. Yeah, hey, true enough. Oh, yeah. I mean, does. today I met Henry, like it was just like, um, yeah, can we do a second show where we just talk about punk rock? Anytime. Okay, cool. I've got you probably got some stuff. Well, like, and hard, like, I'm a big hardcore fan too. Like, what my first tour across the US with Good Rinse was opening for Sick of It All. So, oh my God, that tour, it was, uh, was that the one where Hot Water Music also, or no, it was Indecision? It was, uh, it was, um, Ignite, Good Rinse, and, uh, and Sick of It All. Oh my God. So, like, that was built to last tour. That was right after Scratch the Surface. Yeah. So yeah. it was like, and here I am again, just a kid. And like, we're playing, like, we'd go into like Utah and like the Utah hardcore scene was like, they'd be telling sick of it all to go home. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, like, like Craig, the bass player was in, was in, was in straight ahead. Like, these are like, you know, the credibility, you know, the sick, oh, I don't need to tell you, but anyways, I was just like, I'm like, <laughs> it was fucking anyways. Uh, yeah. We can absolutely do a show. And I was, and again, same as you, like, I took piano as a kid and I hated it, but so I know how to read music, but like I was, I played guitar in bands and bass. My first band, actually I played bass in an Iron Maiden cover band, believe it or not, but uh, wow. also yeah, self-taught, but, um, but I don't even, you know what? I don't even know how to read music at all. I don't, yeah, I do it. because of piano, but I hated it. Yeah. Oh, that's what well, I've heard. Well, so only because like, you know, if you know, you're like, Oh, I want to take piano because I want to be a piano player. But then they make you practice scales for two months <laughs> first, right? Like the proper way of learning how to play music. But you're a kid; you hate that, right? So, yeah. anyways, um, yeah, we we can. Oh, we can do it. I've got lots of fucking stories, man. We can go on and on. Okay, yeah, yeah, let's do that. Because um, I can also, like, in the background, I can just hear my publicist being like, "Isn't this about books?" What's we'll get. Uh, I can cut this whole music part out if we want, but uh, depends how long you got too. I don't know. I'm going to vote leaving it. Please leave it. Okay. Let every, right. Now I want all of these people who are tuning in to be like, Mark's going to talk about books. Be like, oh, Mark hates <laughs> books and actually only likes music. I'm fine with it. No, listen, there's room for both. There's room for both. Um, and speaking of room, let's move on to Star Wars. Um, oh, my gosh. So, yeah, I was I used to write for the Force.net, so lifelong Star Wars fan. I, my parents took me to see Star Wars when I was one, right? Born in 1976 because they couldn't get a babysitter, and my dad had to see it, of course, right? So I've seen every single Star Wars film theatrical release in the theater. Uh, my book collection is gigantic, as you can imagine. Let's get into it. I loved Hunger. I thought it was really great. Um, if for those of you that don't know, Mark, for so for the uh, from a certain point of view, the Empire Strikes Back that came out end of last year, you contributed a short story called Hunger, which was about 
the wampa that attacks Luke on Hoth that we all, of course, is such a famous, uh, not many more famous, is there, that conjures an image in your head, is it, in that scene, for people of a certain age, anyways. Mm -hmm. Um, I loved the approach you took with it. I love it when we give, and you do this in a lot of your books, just in general, where you give voice to something or someone that doesn't normally have one or isn't isn't afforded. Totally intentional, too. Yeah, and... One of my favorite stories from the first, from a certain point of view, the Star Wars one was uh, Nyeri uh, Okorafor's Baptist yeah. story, yeah. giving the Dianoga a voice, right? It's still one of my favorite shorts of all both books. I love it when we do this with, whether it's droids or inanimate objects even, or creatures. And I don't know if you ever read this. I actually have it, a copy of it. I bought it a long time ago of, of Leia Brackett's original Empire Strikes Back script. Um, like the first draft oh. of like 20 or something. Um, I may, I may know things about it because when I, you know, the way the process worked for that anthology, you know, they reached out to my agent and were like, we really like Mark to contribute is Mark a Star Wars fan, at which point you could hear my maniacal laughter from like <laughs> 700 million miles away. Um, and the way it worked is that you basically, once you said yes, it was like, okay, what do you want to do? Like pitch us which character. Yep. And I only pitched two things, which was Winrow Hood, mm. uh, which was claimed extremely early, of course, brilliantly, because yeah. I was like, I'm obsessed with that character. And if you don't, if you're not familiar, yep. Star Wars fans, uh, Winrow Hood is the wonderful gentleman who's running through uh, Cloud City <laughs> Investment with that weird ice cream maker thing yeah. uh, when the when the Empire arrives. Um, and I just have had an obsession with that character for a long time. And then I knew if that doesn't work, and I have a feeling it's not, because that's also a weirdly iconic character. I was like, I, I have to go weird. And so the only other thing I pitched was I want to write from the pr- perspective of, of the Wampa. And then they were like, oh, absolutely. Yes. I did. Sh- I, you must have been in fairly early then. I'm surprised the Wampa was still available. No, I wasn't early. Really? Wasn't because I've had I've had Tom Holler on the show before. We've talked about oh these, my god yeah yeah we've talked about these books like in detail like the process about how they decide who gets what and and yeah. you know and sometimes they give you the idea right or a list of ideas or whatever. Yeah, so, oh, probably. I'm no, shocked. I, I am shocked that the Wampa was still around. I I was too. Yeah, but then I also get it because I think it's such an. It's and and that was the problem it presented to me. So even though you know I was born in '83, so I was born right after Return of the Jedi came out. Yeah, and I grew up on those films. Um, those are the things that I watched. I mean, I probably had the original trilogy memorized by the time I was ten years old. Right. Um, and so, despite having those things imprinted on my brain all of these years, as soon as it came time to like think about the story and begin drafting it. I was petrified because I, here's this thing that is culturally not only so gigantic around the world, but I know that people are going to read it with a careful eye. Like you're not going to read it. I don't oh, know. I don't Star Wars fans are a fucking <laughs> Well, that's a whole separate thing. Yeah, I, also, yeah. I, I also think. No, I don't mean, no, I'm not, I'm not talking about the vile. <laughs> I'm not talking about the assholes. I'm talking about just like the attention to detail. Like, yeah, oh, like, like, yeah, like you were saying. Yeah, yeah. But, and that was also me too, because the other thing I grew up on was like, I remember reading like all the Timothy Zahn books and yep. feeling how detailed they were and how full they were. And, and, and so I was thinking of even this is just a short story. I'm going to be bookended by so many other ones. I was like, this thing 
has to snap. It has to work and fit exactly into place. So I bring all of this up because I may have read, I read so much stuff on the Wampas, deleted scenes, commentary, like as many things as I possibly could to see if this, because I did have a grain of an idea when I pitched it and I was like, I don't know if I can pull this off. And then looked in canon to see whether there was a support for it or whether it was something that was intended for canon and then never quite made it. So, but anyway, well, that's right. That's why I bring up the script because in the original script, I don't know how many drafts it lasted, but there's like a full on Wampa attack on their on Echo Bay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. You it know, was, you know, you know, storyboarded. Yeah. yeah. It's okay. You know about all that then. So, yes. it's, 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 uh, it's amazing because that's actually a really important moment for Luke, right? Because that's where he's supposed to sort of test. It's an early test of his metal and he actually fails uh, in the original draft, right? He kind of like yeah. chickens out a little bit and, and yeah. like it's an issue with him. It's something he's got to work out. But uh, really interesting point. But you ta- so you, you, you introduce this story and you give uh, this Wampa Cubs and a den mate and stuff and you leave it. It's ambiguous, the end. Any now it's been out long enough. You can tell us. <laughs> does well, he does he find his cubs and dead mate again? It's it's a story that fits into the canon of the first 30 minutes of a movie. Like I feel right. like we're way out of spoiler realm. Um the, yeah. I mean the idea, the original idea I had, and I didn't pitch it this way, because I think if I had pitched it this way, they would have been like, uh, no, we can't do that. Is I immediately thought, what if the rebels are gentrifiers? What if that's the reason this whole thing? Because I was thinking of it as like, okay, there is some, you know, uh, what's it, you know, like you can you can anthropomorphize the wampa to an extent and mm-hmm. give it motives and feelings and thoughts. And I certainly thought this creature has to have some of that. There is a level of sentience here that's clearly in the movie. Like it's clearly there. How far can I take that? And my immediate thought when I was like, well, what would I write about it? As I was like, well, what if what if the Wampa is mad specifically either at Luke or the rebels or something like that. And then I was like, Oh, wait a second. So as I was doing research and I came across like the, 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 not really deleted scenes, but like the parts of the script, as well as the stuff that was storyboarded, I was like, okay, there was a grain of this that they were going to attempt this idea that the Wampas lived in the caves underneath the ice in this specific thing because that is what that species did and i just love this idea of saying let's write in the gray area which is we as the audience relate to and we want the rebels to win but what if they did something that they were unaware of the consequences of they were unaware of the repercussions for what they were doing um and then just making this story about this creature's, and it's more than just revenge. It's, you took my home. Like, you took my home. I don't know where the rest of my family is. Um, and that's where that ambiguous ending comes from is, I mean, I, I, I tend to like endings that don't give you everything, mm-hmm. generally speaking, in fiction. Right. But with this one, for me, that was the perfect ending point because I think that's also, it fits so well into the, the canon anyway because you have the Hoth base. You have this place that is such an <clears throat> integral part. Like, there's a really funny. I don't know if you ever watched the Freemaker Adventures. Um, they mm-hmm. actually go to Hoth, and it's years later, and the place is like as it was left, shitty and destroyed, right? Because that's the thing. Like the rebels are like 
uh, clear cutters. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah like yeah. I mean, it's they they went in and you know they wrangled all you know a lot of the tauntauns. And there's the other one, the naturalist. That's a good one too in the book. Um, they didn't leave it as nice as they found it, right? Let's be honest. Right. But um, uh, in the Freemaker Adventures, I highly recommend. By the way, really yeah. so well written. Anyways, they go back there, and there is a couple of um, wampas hanging around the base. So I don't not saying it's connected. <laughs> um, but but uh, the rebels, like what? Oh, why I wanted to leave it at that point too is thinking of it of in sort of the grand scheme of things, which is you know as sh- as, as shitty as some of this behavior is, it's also behavior out of desperation. Yeah, of course. There's a group of people yeah. who yeah. are consistently on the run and trying to survive, mm-hmm. and so I love this almost unintentional in terms of these two groups of, 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 living creatures, like both of them are trying to survive and both of them are like in this sort of like icy hellscape of a world. Um, and so nothing is certain. There is no certainty to who's going to survive and how you're going to make it. Um, but I just wanted to leave it on that note of this is why this happened. This is why we see such ferocity and why, it's not, you know, it's not that this one Wampa was like, fuck Luke, like, who cares? You know, it wasn't. Well, he doesn't know Luke from Adam. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. it's, listen, as an animal lover, I'm all for it. I'm like, get, <laughs> get them, right? <laughs> get <'em. laughs> you got to protect your cubs, man. Um, no, I get it. Uh, I loved it. I thought it was really great. Like I said, anytime we do that, I'm, I'm all, I'm all for it. And giving a voice I, to the I would also real quickly say that the other big inspiration for it is an interview that Mark Hamill did many, many years ago in which he talked about how he felt that Luke's behavior in that scene was flawed and that he wouldn't harm a living creature like that. Right. And I, I loved running from that and taking that and running with it of this mm-hmm. idea of, well, then let's, internalize it let's go into the creature and see what this this feels like um and and for me at the end of the day a lot of what i try to write is empathy is how can you empathize with something that seems completely unempathizable with you know and in this case it's let's bring ourselves into the minds of a creature who only really exists in the movie to be an antagonist and then say well what if what does it look like from their perspective well, fear is a great motivator for violence, yeah. right? Um, let's, and and that's the thing. Even the wampa isn't, they're not wasteful, right? They only take as much tauntaun as they need. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And leave the rest. Yeah, like, the there's, rest. like there's so much, it's so, there's so much allegorical stuff going on there. We could, we could, oh, yeah. just, we could spend a whole show on that. But um, I do want to, I know I'm smart enough to know the answer to this question. Um, anything about 2022, June 7th, you want to talk about? It was supposed to, uh, oh boy. I love that it opens, I will say it's an open secret and it has been for months, right. but I'm not allowed to talk about it. No, I know. I usually know how it goes. Yeah. I'll, uh, yeah um, but I just did, I, I actually didn't know if there was something official yet that maybe I missed no. or anything. Okay, perfect. That's, all, there, that's all I'm going to say. There will be a reason that everyone will be like, oh, because it was actually supposed to be October 26th like in a month um but something happened and i can't talk about it uh i'll just say it was a dream come true and one of the coolest things i've ever done i'll bet and it's got me very excited mark yeah. so let's let's leave it there um a nice segue though is one of the reasons i love middle grade um there's no bullshit there's no fluff or very little of it anyways right yeah. um so yeah. so 
The Insiders um, is a middle grade book. Um, I'm going to read the summary here just because it's nice and short. And I love short summaries. Um, San Francisco and Orangeville may be in the same state, but for Hector uh, Munez, they might as well be a million miles apart. Back home, being gay didn't mean feeling different. At Hector's new school, he couldn't feel more alone. Most days, Hector just wishes he could disappear, and he does, right into the janitor's closet. Yes, he sees the irony. But one day, when the door closes behind him, Hector discovers he stumbled into a room that shouldn't be possible, a room that connects him with two friends, two new friends, sorry, from different corners of the country, and opens the door to a life-changing year full of magic, friendship, and adventure. Um, so this is a middle grade book. It's your first middle grade book? Yeah, it yes. is. Why, what, so that's why I like middle grade for what I just said, right? Very little fluff. Like, mm-hmm. we got shit to do. Let's, let's go do it. Very on point, you know, character-wise. Is that why you like it? And if not, tell me what you really love about middle grade. So one of the things, I, I, it's interesting that you, the way that you describe what works about there being no fluff because I think that's or I, I think that's very much correct about how character driven and plot driven middle grade can be the reason I was drawn to it is one of the things I like writing why I like writing young adult fiction is for me young adult fiction is so much about these huge transformational transitional periods of of life where right. you are shedding the thing that you define as your childhood as you begin to uh, enter what you know most worlds and societies consider adulthood and there's something so volatile and interesting about that and i, I tend to write about characters in young adult transitioning from one space to another and i think there is still an element of that in the insiders on a much smaller scale but i don't for me what what made me so interested in middle grade is you know especially as i think back to when i was 11 12 years old and what i was going through um is i feel like middle grade has this amazing ability um to sort of hone in on stories about the realization of the self is, is I feel like that is when you start realizing, this doesn't sound really cheesy, but like you start realizing like you're a person in the world and you have a distinct identity and you have a distinct personality that is different from everyone else. Um, I think there's a sort of, I, at least my experience, like in, you know, when I was in elementary school or grade school is there's this sense that you're kind of, you kind of are like everyone else and, and everyone, you're not everyone, but like, people are into the same things as you and you in, I found friendships a lot easier in elementary school. And then in junior high, it was the first moment where I'm like, ah, everyone's growing and changing and all our bodies are weird. And I don't know, understand. And so it's sort of like the first major moment of confusion in, in, um, you know, in adolescence life. And so I was drawing from that place of, okay, and I, I think it fits really well with the insiders in particular because Hector, he's he's got this sense that he knew who he was already. Like he's like, I figured it out. Like I'm openly gay. I live in this the mission district in San Francisco. And just that one change of I'm moving hundred, I don't know, I think it's like 120 miles away, maybe a little bit more than that, out to Orangevale. And then who do you become when your environment changes? And so for me, I love both how straightforward that is, but then getting to write like the first bits of like emotional complexity for a character instead of them having years and years of that 
this is like the first real big challenge in this character's life. And I think that writing a first major challenge versus a character's, you know, like in Anger's Gift, each of us a desert, I feel like they're on like challenge number 100 at that point. <laughs> like, and so I think there is just a, a much different outlook on the world and an, a different outlook on the self that is in middle grade, that is a, a huge challenge, but is very, very satisfying to write about. When I was when I was in grade school, I went to like six different grade schools because my we moved we moved around a lot for work for my parents, and it was never like even in the same town like or area. And this is of course before the internet, so like I didn't wasn't able to keep friends, you know what yeah. I'm saying? Just because it wasn't possible. Plus, you're a kid, right? Um, so I was constantly the new kid. Um, so I could definitely relate, you know, in that sense for sure. And there's a really great line in a book, and I'm I'm not going to be able to remember it, so I won't waste time trying to think about it. But it's the difference between having one friend and no friends is like the Grand Canyon. Yeah, absolutely. And, right. And so Hector has a great situation in San Francisco with um, Tim and Sophia, his friends yeah. we had there. And they were just like, they had this wonderful uh, theater program and like, it just life couldn't be better <laughs> for Hector. And then you pull him out of the situation and, and put him into you know, I'm not going to say the worst position in the world, but right, but it's but, but for him, it feels like the worst position in the world because you've taken everything from him. You've taken yeah. theater from him. You've taken friendship from him. Um, you've taken safety, the most important part, safety. You've yeah. taken safety from him, that secure feeling outside of the home. Because I should say that his family unit is fucking like on point, like intact oh, and great. No. And, yeah, and he's safe there. Right. But we don't, we don't, we can't stay in our houses for you know, for 24 hours a day. So that's the big part of this for me. And, and this is middle grade, so you can't get too dire, obviously, but talk about sort of riding that line between making it feel like a real threat, this new environment Right. But, all, but also maintaining that, yeah, that, that childlike enthusiasm for life. It, it's, I mean, it is also sort of related to your question about where this came from, because okay. The Insiders is very much a book about the notion of what a safe space is, because mm. you hear that word a lot. We hear that term used very, very frequently, and it's often maligned in a way because it's a straw man, because people define it as a certain thing and then criticize like, well, there is no safe space in the world. Right. Um, and so I love that you brought up that what is so key to Hector's journey early in the book is he loses safety and what that means. And that was something that came across um, through editing and my brilliant editor, Stephanie Sion at, at HarperCollins was like, I really think that the reader needs to understand what that feels like because the book, the draft that I turned into her started much later and you don't see the loss of safety. He just already lost it. And she made a good point of like, I think some people will not be able to understand what that means unless they see it. So you have this character walking in the school, you know, with their held, head held high. And they're like, you know what, this is different. It's weird, but I'm going to give it a good try and showing what it means to actually not feel safe, which is this character has to get to a point where they start hiding in a closet and how absurd that is like saying it out loud. It's like, what, why would you do that? But in the book, it's, how do you understand this character gets to this point? Um, and so that happens in order to then explore this notion. And it's been really interesting how many people have been like, I can't tell you how many times as a kid, I wish I just had a room that I could disappear into. 
Mm. Not forever, because that's the other point that you, that you made that is so on point about what this book is about, is that there is no one space you can be in all the time for the rest of your life. Right. We right. can, we can, you know, make a, a space in our home that feels safe and wonderful and loving, or maybe you are lucky enough to have a space at your work where you, it is caring and supportive or whatnot, or maybe you have a space with a group of friends, but we all have to navigate a world that is very complicated and you know, with, with especially with Hector and these and these two other kids, they get, they start realizing like, man, this one room is amazing and incredible, but we also have to go out into the world. So how do we navigate that as well? Um, and so that's what I was thinking of as I was writing this book: is how do you, what would you do if you had a genuinely safe space that would protect you from things in the world that are bad? Um, but then how do you also make the world outside of that space better mm. that when you have to leave, how do you, cause that's really what it's about is this collective notion of, well, we kind of have to do better. Um, I will say though, I, I didn't know how dark I could get in middle grade. I, 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 <laughs> I went, cause here's the thing. I went into it being like my first two YA books are there a lot. And I wanted to write something that was lighter and funnier and sillier. And it is fascinating to me, though, that there is still, a, I think, a pretty intense storyline. And it gets to a pretty intense place in the book. And it's not so much that you can't write about darkness and you can't, you know, deal with very serious topics. Um, I think that myself and my editor found a pretty good balance between the two. Yeah. Um, well, the themes, the, the themes are there, right? The, yeah. mes- the, the messaging is there. It's just not, ex- whereas, you know, an adult book, let's say, would be exploitive. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I like what you just said about, uh, yeah, you've got this great room that is magical and does whatever you need it to do, but you still have, that doesn't solve any of your problems in the real world. And right. so that's where it becomes really, really important and also very practical just from a storytelling standpoint where you don't advance time outside the room. Yeah. Time stands still basically. So when yeah. they, when they go back out of the room, it's like no time had passed at all. Yeah. And that's, that's our, like I said, a really great practical way of applying that lesson to these three characters in particular, that that's great. I'm glad you had a nice beanbag chair in there, but you, there's still shit to deal with. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so the other two people he runs into in this room, uh, Juliana and Sal, um, really, really great. There's a moment where Sal, I won't get into the details necessarily, but Sal makes an offensive comment. Yeah. And he, uh, sorry, they offend Juliana. I won't say exactly how, but that happens a lot. It does. Like every second of every day, whether it's on Twitter or in real life, where somebody makes a comment where they meant no offense, of course. Yeah. Um, but because old habits die hard or <laughs> you know what I mean? Or whatever, right? Or old words die hard, I guess, is maybe the better way to put it. And talk about that, like that that type of sort of problem solving between two people and how we're able to get past these things. Because it is, because a lot of the stuff that's happening in the world right now is scary for a lot of people, depending mm-hmm. on where they came from. 
Yeah. And it's so new in the grand scheme of the universe, isn't it? Like things like we're, we're having the conversation on so many things right now. So we can't expect to have all the answers. And some people are going to be slow to the take, slower to the take than others. Yeah. How do uh, we, how do we hold their hand? How do we guide them? Like, it's okay to be angry at them if they make a mistake, but we have to maybe come from a place of understanding of it too. You know what I'm saying? I don't think I'm worried. Yeah. That, yeah. And it's, um, I love that you brought this up too, because I, I really love that whole sequence in the book. So do I. As yeah. hard as it was to write, it's a very, it went through multiple drafts. There were okay. different things that happened. The core of it always happened in every draft. And my initial sort of thinking on it was, was twofold, which is, well, if this is going to be about building a better world, how does someone make a misstep? Mm. How does someone make a misstep in trying to do a good thing? Because like you said, it is such a common thing for all of us. All of us make missteps, you know, or at least those of us who are committed to building a new world. Cause there That's are right. people who do things That's in bad. Right. That's we right. won't ignore them. <laughs> no, over there. So it was that thinking of, well, how does someone make a mistake while trying to do good? And what does it mean? But then also thinking of if, if I am writing a book in which the concept of a safe space is so literalized, it is literally a room that creates a safe space. What happens when someone breaks the covenant? Yep. When someone does something to make something inherently unsafe for someone else. So I think that first of all, it helps establish because it is technically, you know, it's like speculative fiction light of a book. I don't think That's it's right. like super heavy on the like magic or the science or the, or any of that sort of stuff. But I still knew there needed to be rules. And I was rules, just, you just stole community. the word. I just, rules was on my mind as you were saying that. Yeah. Yeah. And the rule is what happens if someone in the room does something to make the room the thing that can't protect people or can't save? What does it actually look like? Um, I represent a lot of it very physically, um, right. you know, and I, I, you know, for spoiler reasons, we'll not go into everything that happens because I still want to yep. be a surprise for most people. But um, I wanted to show what the immediate consequences were, but then also what are the long-term ones? And there is a sort of snaking plot throughout the book of, well, what happens between two people when someone harms someone else? What does an actual apology look like? Mm -hmm. And what does it mean? Um, like there's a line way, I, I don't know, if you read the arc, it's not actually in there because oh, okay. we're still editing it but there are some slight differences between the arc and the final version. And one of them is that late in the book, there's this moment where Sal is like, I have to accept that maybe Juliana is still kind of angry at me. Right. Even though I apologize, even though I've done things to make amends, I have to accept that this is something that we're going to have to work out. And I actually think that is an important part of that process because I think what has made things, one of the things that has made things so difficult is I think a lot of us were raised that harming a person and apologizing is almost like a mathematical process. If you do A and add it to B and then divide it by C, you will get result D, which mm -hmm. is the same every single time, which is just not how it works. It, because we are all so different, we're so varied, we're coming from different places, the impact of harm could be much heavier or more intense than we ever could have realized, or it could be less that it has to be like, it has to be on a more case by case basis. And it has to be at the comfort of, you know, making sure that the person uh, who was hurt feels like they've been heard, feels like they've been listened to. If it involves like rectifying harm, especially if it, you know, 
if you're talking about like physical damage, emotional damage and, and, and whatnot, but then also just respecting what was more important to me than anything. It's like, it's just a process. It's a thing. It could be as quick as, you know, cause I've been in situations where, you know, with a friend where a friend said something like kind of like harmful or weird or, or bigoted or whatever. And I'm like, yo, that's not cool. Maybe you don't say that. And then they're like, Oh shit. Okay. Sorry. That won't happen again. And we're fine. Right. Like, and I think there's a lot of fear that that doesn't happen anymore. I'm like, no, it happens all the time. Mm -hmm. We all say things that are ingrained in us that we believe or, or, or act on because we live in a world in which those messages are basically, you know, printed onto our brains at a very, very young age. So I wanted to show a spectrum of like, because I think there is that element of harm that is much smaller than some of the other things that happen in the book. And what does actual justice look like for those people? Um, so I, I, I think interpersonal conflict is not only a fun and fun and challenging thing to write about, but I think it is an important thing to represent in terms of you know, showing what kind of behavior could be modeled and showing like, you are going to have disagreements with your friends, your friends may, or you may do something to harm one another. How do you approach having those conversations and how do you approach humility and guilt and, and, and all of these things like, um, you know, so that's, I, I get, that's sort of where I was coming from with those. I think that like the conversation that these two kids and they are kids have um, is, is the one that adults should be having. And it's, and it's great. It's great to me that it's, you know, we're getting this messaging from kids. And one of the things that I thought of when I was, you know, reading this book, and I'm actually writing a piece right now, DK sent me this great book called Allies. Yeah. You've probably heard of it. And, um, you know, as I consider myself one and, and I had considered myself one uh, two years ago. And then when, you know, the events of everything that had been happening, I sat down and realized I could be doing more. So I made some decisions to do more and I've been doing more. And so I'm writing a piece right now on that book, Allies. And one of the things that dawned on me in this book too is, is Hector needed allies in the, from, from the adults in his life. Yes. And he didn't, it, they weren't, he, he got him at home for sure, but other places it, it was very wanting. <laughs> and you give us adults that are great and you give us adults that are assholes and adults who just are not great at all. Yeah. Talk about how important that is to find allies in your life as a kid who are adults, because we're, we're raised to be like respect adults, all this stuff. And you can go to, you can trust an adult with your problems. You can go to an adult if you have issues. Yeah. Well, that's not always the case, is it? No, it's not. And so, uh, you know, for listeners, I'm going to give a trigger warning for, uh, you know, homophobia and bullying. Um, so the insiders, the story itself, while it came from, you know, this, fantastical and not very good manuscript that I wrote like 16, 17 years ago. Um, when I was, when I unearthed it again and it started taking shape into a different story, the actual emotional core of the insiders is based on something I went through in middle school. Um, you know, I, I, I had an okay experience in grade school. I also had, you know, in elementary school, I also went through like a life 
what felt like a life-ending move. I moved from Boise, Idaho to Riverside, California. Very extremely, extremely different move. But I was able to make friends in elementary school. And then I got to junior high. And junior high was the first place where this idea of, oh, you're very different from everyone else really began to affect me. And in particular, I got bullied a lot. Um, and 99% of the bullying was homophobic, which is always like in hindsight is always very interesting for me to think about. And I said this in another interview that I did a couple weeks ago where I was like, I think about it now. And I was like, you bullied me because you thought I was gay. You were actually correct. Like you were, able to, <laughs> like you were able to recognize this part of me that I knew, but I was so deep in the closet that I was in denial. But I was like, that is so fascinating to me. And I would love to unpack that at another time. But, you know, I went through some really, I mean, like over the top, I can't even, I was going to say textbook bullying, but I, it was way beyond that. Um, and it, part of it was because of where I grew up. I grew up, it, you know, Riverside is in the Inland Empire. It's far inland of California. There's this notion that everyone in California is lives in this sort of progressive, perfect environment. And it's not true, especially if you don't live on the coast or any, in some of these larger cities. Right. And so I did what you were supposed to do when you were bullied. And, you know, I came, you're, you're also like, I, I'm curious if you also had all of that sort of like ingrained teaching about like, when bad things happen to you, you go to an adult and you talk to them. Like that was such a huge message when I was a kid. So I'm in seventh grade. I am, have two bullies in particular who are awful. And so I went to a counselor after a particularly violent incident and was like, this is what's happening or whatnot. And the counselor said it was my fault and said, if you didn't act the way that you did and make yourself a target, no one would pick on you. And it was, it was the first crystal clear moment that I had in my life that was, oh, an adult, like this adults don't have my back. Mm. And when you were brainwashed into thinking all you have to do is tell an adult and you'll be fine. And then that doesn't work. Um, it is, I consider it a huge sort of like turning point in my life in thinking about who I'm safe with, who I'm able to talk to. So in the book, a, a huge emotional anchor of it is Hector going to an adult and telling them the truth and the adult not believing them and showing then what are the ramifications of that? If you choose not to believe a kid, if you choose, I mean, even worse, I think what's, what happens with, with Hector is even worse because it's not just that he isn't believed, but someone imagines and creates an entire narrative of who he is without asking him. Right. And I think in particular, when you're dealing with children, how deeply unfair that is, you know, they're, there it's all, I mean, and that's from personal experience too. That same counselor who, you know, after I said this person did these acts of violence, you know, I'm not going to describe what they are, you know, so, so as not to trigger people, but you know, they did these horrible things to me and then being told, well, why do you act the way that you do? Mm. You know, stop walking around like that. Don't talk like that. Like don't move your hands like that. Don't do all of these specific behaviors um, that seem effeminate and therefore make it acceptable to bully you. That same counselor then asked like, 
oh, are you having a difficult home life? How can I help you with that? I'm like, even if I was, and I was having a difficult home life for completely different reasons that that is not what she intended. You just showed me, I can't tell you the truth. Right. There is no way I'm going to tell you anything. And so for me, um, uh, oh my God, I literally forgot the name of my own character. Is it Mrs. Hall? Uh, Heath. No. Hall. Heath. 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 I knew it was an eight. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Miss Heath. Miss Heath is the complete, like, polar opposite end of the spectrum of the room. Yeah. Like, what is, this is a person who is deeply unsafe, who, who doesn't care for other people, or at least claims to care about other people. Um, but their actions don't line up with it. And it is. And given, and given her job title. Oh my God. That, I mean, right? Which it makes it even worse. Cause she's the head of head of security or whatever. Yeah, right? and so, like, yeah. What are you securing? What are right. you, you had one job. Um, <laughs> you know, like, but it's, it comes from that place of experience of, of having someone, a counselor, like, not that it would have made it any better if it was a random teacher. Like if I right. told my science teacher or if I told my English teacher, your literal job is to counsel students and you did the exact opposite. And so that, that place of contradiction was where I was coming from with this character in this book. And, and then it's interesting to see how once that happens, you start noticing that Ector has a lot more problem talking to other adults, even adults he loves and trusts, it becomes this thing where this one person's misbehavior starts fracturing his sense of what he can tell other adults. Um, and so I wanted to rip it, because that was also my experience too. Once that happened, I start being like, can I trust anyone? Um, and so I wanted to then guide Hector along this path to how can he begin to repair that? Um, and right. how can he begin to see that keeping secrets has this immense emotional weight that he, you know, you don't realize it until it happens. And especially after the fact of like how much a secret can weigh on your heart. And so he's keeping all of this bullying a secret from the other adults in his life. When the truth is he didn't need to, if he had told one other person, like, you know, all hell would have broken loose and, and, you know, in his favor, but that's what that one person mistrusting him disbelieving him caused is caused him to view other adults um through this negative lens well that's like as kids you know I'll, I'll let you go here in a couple of minutes um kept you way too long um as kids this is a lesson we this is a lesson we only learn once we learn it yeah. right it's like right. as kids as kids everything is trial and error so but it's to your point it's how we react to that situation and move forward is, is what determines us and what type of person we become and the character we become. And yeah, like, you know, growing up, I, I was raised, I went to Roman Catholic schools. I'm an atheist now. Um, and you Boy, know, we have, we have, I was, uh, I was a teenage convert to Catholicism and I'm an atheist now. And we both have crossbuster tattoos. We need to is now, I trust. Yeah, I know. Right. I, or, or as some people say my, my uh, lowercase T, what, why, why don't I like lowercase T's? Um, oh, yeah, yeah, I know. Right. Ha ha. But, uh, and, um, um, yeah, growing up, you're supposed to trust. So I was raised to trust priests, yep. uh, teachers and police Two of the three. I, I won't trust as far as I could throw them. Um, yeah. and, and teachers, I'm always willing to give the benefit of the doubt because 
underpaid, overworked, right? Yeah. Um, but there's good ones and bad ones, like any, they're not a monolith, like anything else. So, but yeah, it's how you react to those situations is what's important. And like you said, if, if Hector had gone to Mrs. Caroline instead of Mrs. Heath, maybe well then you don't yeah. even, then you don't even write the book because maybe there's no book to write well, okay. <laughs> so, yeah. but also yeah. but, but also thinking of like what i mean there because there is oh see now i want to talk about spoilers because there are some very interesting conversations that he does have with mrs caroline that's right that that's right like, i'm not sure how much i can trust this person but they actually seem good and they seem to have you know, I there there is a point where they almost talk, and it's actually was one of my favorite scenes to write because you know, without spoiling it too much, I I held back in particular because I really wanted this to be about how can Hector come to his to come to the conclusion that he needs to. Like, I didn't want to hand him the answers, and I I, I really love how much of this is about him finding his own path forward. Right. Uh, That's a lot of middle grade though, right? Where the kids have to take it upon themselves because the adults in their world are useless, right? Yeah. Or, or absent yeah. or whatever, or just can't, or just don't have an end of, don't have the wherewithal. So that's a lot of middle grade, right? Kids having to step up and be the adults. Oh. Um and that's really great, but it, it did remind me, Miss Caroline in particular, yeah, you sort of imply she knows a little bit more than what she lets on, but it also reminded me sort of like the high school from Pump Up the Volume, where like this, oh. uh, this, this, this like authoritarian control and teachers were afraid to speak up because they would just be fired or removed, you know, like the students or something like that. So I got this sense yeah. that like, because Mrs. Heath had more control over the school than even like we learned that even maybe even the principal realizes, um, it, had teachers even even well intended teachers sort of boxed in a little bit but yeah um anyways that's that's a whole other thing <laughs> but uh i'm gonna let you go because i've kept you way too long mark and um, um this it, was a delight i mean i'm literally i'm at the end of this being like when can the second one happen when are we um, we've definitely what have we learned we've learned never throw out your old scripts um yes I, i've said this to authors before debut authors who like had fallen in love with a story they'd queried, but it just never went anywhere. And I'm like, well, listen, once you're a huge successful author, you'll get to write those stories and so don't throw them out. Well, um, I will also say that it's, it takes time. And yes. what yeah. I mean by that is that there are things I now know as a writer that I did not know when I wrote that about why certain elements of a story weren't working. In particular, the original manuscript that I wrote, it was a young adult book. The kid was five years older. And that was a major problem is the story that I was trying to craft about this magical closet didn't just didn't work with an older character. They had to be younger. And it took me many years and many failures to realize like, well, oh, there was a good idea here. The execution of it was lacking and here's why. Sure. So yeah. I always tell people save the stories that don't make it, save the old drafts. There are grains of good ideas in them. Well, that's, that's, that's it. That is the nail, like head, hammer, whatever, you know, idiom you want to use. Good ideas are good ideas. Good ideas are good ideas. So hang on to those good ideas and uh, get yourself a good editor <laughs> and work on those good ideas because that's what they, that's what they're buying, right? They're buying you and they're buying the idea, Like They're going to work. They're going to work through the whole process. I mean, that's what writing is editing, right? The process yeah, is, exactly. that is, that is art is the process. So yeah, hang on to those good ideas, folks. Um, this book is a is a ton of fun from start to finish. I love the messaging. I think it's on point and I think it's perfect. Um, we 
the food in this book, you're going to be hungry. <laughs> this book, there's so much great food in this book. We like barely touched on Sal and Juliana. They have a just as they are having just as much time as Hector is. And Juliana, it's not a coming out for Hector, but it is a little bit for Juliana. And she's yeah. deciding. She's deciding who she is. Like you said, this is a this is the first big moment in all three of their lives. Really, it's it's a moment that will it's going to define the rest of their life. So yeah. I felt privileged to be in on that, to be reading this big moment, this first big moment in their three lives for three people that on paper are probably going to turn out pretty damn good and end up doing pretty great things in their life. And it, you give you, I felt a sense of pride that I was allowed to read that, to be in on that, that secret. And this book has a fucking great ending. It's not really an epilogue. It kind of is, but um, you just end this book with a really cool little trick that we're obviously not going to say anything about, but um, top, top marks. Mark, <laughs> so this book, um, September 21st, this show will come out probably the day before. What do you got going on launch day? Uh, well, I, I am doing a wonderful event with my wife, Zoraida Cordova, um, through yep. the uh, Story Bookshop. It's a virtual event. Perfect. Uh, I don't actually know where I will physically be, which is interesting. I have to. Are you doing I, any in-person events? Uh, we were supposed to. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, it didn't work out um, for, you know, very yep. understandable reasons, yep. but I do need to go to New York at some point because I have to sign a bunch of books. Yep. So I haven't figured out if I'm going to go before the launch and then be there launch day or be here in Atlanta on a launch day and then go the day after. So I'll be somewhere in the country doing the the, the virtual launch. I know. I'm, nor- first- I'm normally in New York a few times a year myself. And I just, yeah. uh, you just left there, moved from there, but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's killing me. And I, I, my next trip is actually Y'all Fest, Charleston in, in November. I'm a little scared. <laughs> I don't know. I'm a little it's, nervous. <laughs> it's weird. Yeah. I, I, have I I haven't done a whole bunch of stuff. I've done very very few trips. Um, I think because we went through most of it in New York. I think yeah. New Yorkers have a different sense of like right. what is risky behavior and what is. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but yeah. I have a few. I'm very excited because in October, uh, because the weather is nicer down here in right. the south. Right. I have two school visits in October in middle schools, but they're going to be outdoors. Okay, that's cool. Which is like, I was like, okay, I'm safe with that. Like, yeah, yeah. We need to do presentations. I'll get to have a microphone. I'm, I, uh, one of them's in Atlanta. The other is in Savannah, Georgia. Yeah. I'm real excited. And I get to like be outdoors with a bunch of kids and they're buying class sets and we're going to talk about this book. And I'm excited for that because I, I miss meeting readers. I miss it so yeah. much. Probably that's a weird, that's a weird. Job. That's actually a weird fetish of mine. I really love seeing fans meet authors. Like yeah. I, I'm I, like, I'll stand off to the side and w- just watch that exchange of energy and emotion. I love it. I get off on it. It charges me up. It fucking like I could do it all day long. I love it, and I and I miss that for you as an author. I mean, getting but you know, we come from music. It's the same thing. Like yeah, getting, that's right. That, that's right. Yeah, that interaction. Right. Like, oh, well, obviously, especially because we come from punk rock and hardcore. It's like, well, that interaction is also like singing along the words, the finger. That's right. That's right. Like, yeah. There's a whole different. Like, I don't know that I want kids stage diving on me. <laughs> I know I'm I'm no I'm a back of the club guy now uh, I'm the boring oh. uh, yeah 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 but uh yeah I mean yeah sure back in the day up front sweating you know like yeah, yeah, singing yeah, yeah. along but uh, though yeah. I would say if I if I did a reading and a kid like stage dove onto the like signing table I would be like 
Yes. You shouldn't have done that, but I love that you did it anyway. Like that good kid's going to be something special. Yeah. Um, MarcoShiro.com. You're on all the social media stuff. So I'm sure you'll update that with any events and stuff you've got going on. Um, Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. Obviously, oh, this was a you. lot of fun. and a um, delight. I and- genuinely thought like, 30 minutes have passed. I can't believe it. <laughs> I know, so much time. I'm sorry. I apologies once again. No, but, no um, apologies either. This was amazing. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll talk in the, we'll talk real soon for sure. There you have it. Another episode of Everything is Canon all wrapped up. Huge thanks to Mark for taking the time to chat with me. Pretty obvious. We both had a great time and I can't say enough about the insiders. It's really great stuff. To pick up a copy or find out more information, head on over to markoshiro.com. As always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you choose to listen and head on over to sendalinks.com for the latest movie, TV, books, and gaming news. Please continue to be safe out there. Bye for now.